Our scripture passage today is from Ephesians. We're in chapter 4, verses 17 through chapter 5, verse 2. Hear God's word. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way that you learned Christ. Assuming you have learned about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God, in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God and Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Well, good morning. Uh, My name is Gabe Coyle. I'm the campus pastor here at Christ Communities downtown campus. And today marks the final week of a three-week series where we are addressing the big why behind the local church. Because listen, in a world of competing demands... The question that always looms in the back of every one of our minds is, why church, right? I mean, we live in a a culture that's broadly skeptical of religion and then frustrated with the church specifically. So so why church? And if we want to make the world a better place, you know, the older you get, the more you mature, you realize you have limited time and resources. And so you're asking yourself, "If if I say yes to this, what am I saying no to? So why do we say yes to the local church? And this is important because every movement and every organization at its very core has this big why, this compelling reason that gets people out of bed in the morning, this audacious idea that gathers a following. And, and the really great movements, those, who bring about, that, those that, which bring about change and the really phenomenal organizations that see sustainable influence throughout time are those that come back to this big why year after year after year. So Why? Why for over 2,000 years has the local church been worth it? I mean, why not take your Sunday mornings when it's not raining and just go for long walks with family and friends in the woods, right? Well, duh, Gabe, because that's just about me. Okay, sure. I think most of us get that. But then 
Well, then why don't you just fill your Sundays with really good service projects? If you want to make the world a better place, why don't you, why don't you serve in a soup kitchen or another nonprofit, which is really good work, but why, why then even do we do this week in and week out? Why? Another way to ask this is, why is the church worth it? Why do we gather together and sing songs together? Why do we hear God's word read to us? Why do we encourage and sharpen one another? Why the church? And what we've said for the past two weeks and what we'll say again this morning, and, and this is the reason why, is because there's hope here. There's hope here in the local church unlike anywhere else in the rest of the world. When disappointment sets in at work, when, when, when despair tries to take hold of your life, when discouragement shows up in the most unlikely place, in the accompaniment of your accomplishments, <laughs> when failure rocks your world, when injustice shakes a city or our nation. It's the local church. At the center of the local church, as God designed it, you don't find cynicism that gets absorbed with brokenness. You don't find naive optimism that glosses over brokenness. Instead, you find hope. There's hope here. That's the big why. I mean, it's this hope that radically altered the life of a guy named Saul in the first century, such that his name actually became Paul, and then he became one of the greatest apostles this world has ever known and wrote a third of the New Testament. It's, it's, it's this hope that continued to press on the apostle Paul, such that when he faced persecution, even when he's in prison for this hope, he writes this letter to a local church, the church in Ephesus, and he wants them to remember, out of all things... We read in chapter 1, verse 18, the Apostle Paul wants them to know and understand of all things what? This hope we have. And so over these past two weeks and now this morning, third week, we, we're, we're teasing out this hope that the Apostle Paul so desperately wants us to know, that the Apostle Paul so desperately thinks we need to understand, that's at the very center, the big why of the local church. And what we've seen, looking back at week one, is when we are in Ephesians 2, kind of teasing out this, this hope, this powerful hope that's anchored in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus in history should engage every single one of our stories personally. Because listen, if this isn't hope for you and for me, and it's, it's just something for my neighbor, if it's just something for the city, and it never makes you new, then we've missed it. This is first a hope for me, a hope for you. But we can't stop there. Because in reality, when we understand the depths of this hope, when we just understand Scripture in Ephesians chapter 2, and we continue to tease this out, there's an important word in chapter 2, verse 11, therefore, there's a necessity in terms of the kind of community that's created when this hope becomes personal, then it becomes and shapes a certain kind of communal reality, a place where anyone can be family, anyone. And God, he's, he's actually... He's given this hope not just for me, but now for an us, for us. And he's cultivating a community that puts to shame the divisions we see throughout the rest of the world. But even there, we can't stop. When we understand the robust nature of this hope that we've been entrusted, we come to see that this isn't just a hope for me, it isn't just a hope for us, but actually the end game is that it's a hope for all. It's a hope for all. You see, this, this hope, it changes so much more than we often think, or at least than we daily think about. Because it does more than just make us new, make me new, if that wasn't enough. It does more than just make a new kind of family where we can be family to someone and someone else can be family to us, if that wasn't enough. 
Instead, what we see is that this hope, it changes everything. Like it changes the way you see the world, the way you work, the feelings that you affirm and the feelings that you reject. It, it changes everything. You see, the church, that's God's plan A for bringing renewal to the city and the betterment to this world. And he doesn't have a plan B. And this, this hope, it's so audacious. It impacts people who want nothing to do with Jesus. It impacts institutions that are antagonistic to the local church. The local church, as God designed it, is the hope of the world. Why? Because this hope that's been entrusted to the local church changes everything. You know, I was, I was thinking about our passage that was just read for us and, and this morning's message this week, and it reminded me of an article I read a couple years ago in the Times. And every time I read it, it blows me away. It, it reminds me of the big why, the big why behind the local church, that only the local church has been entrusted out of every other institution this world knows. And, and what always blows me away is that it's not written by a Christian. It's not written in a Christian publication. Instead, Matthew Paris, is a, he, he's a confirmed atheist. And, and when he's writing this article, listen to the title that he chooses. Remember, this isn't words from a Christian. This isn't words that were manipulated in a Christian publication, if that's a fear of yours. These are words that he chooses and this is the article. As an atheist, I truly believe Africa needs God. <laughs> it is weird. Good, good job, Paulette. I'm here. I'm here with you. Uh, I heard that. Um, <laughs> now remember, these aren't my words. These aren't words of a Christian. This is Paris. Not the city, this guy. Matthew Paris, an atheist. And listen to what he writes. Now a confirmed atheist, I've become convinced of the enormous contribution that Christian evangelism makes in Africa, sharply distinct from the work of secular NGOs, government projects, and international aid efforts. These alone, he's not saying those are bad, okay? He's not saying that that's not important. What he's saying is these alone will not do. Education and training alone will not do. In Africa, Christianity changes people's hearts. It brings a spiritual transformation. The rebirth is real. The change is, get ready, good. I used to avoid this truth by applauding, as you can, the practical work of mission churches in Africa. It's a pity, I would say, that salvation's a part of the package. <laughs> I love that honesty. That's great. But Christians, black and white, working in Africa, do heal the sick, do teach people to read and write, and only the severest kind of secularist could see a mission hospital or school and say the world would be better without it. I would allow that if faith was needed to motivate missionaries to help, then fine. But what counted was the help, not the faith. But listen to this. But this doesn't fit the facts. Faith does more than support the missionary. It also is transferred to his flock. Another metaphor we see in scripture for the church. This is the effect that matters so immensely in which I cannot help observing. Isn't that amazing? Someone who's a confirmed atheist who does not believe that God exists, let alone that some guy in the first century named Jesus was resurrected, and yet he can't help but praise the institution of the local church when he calls it the flock, and that these, the, the African faith of these, these gentlemen and these women who are living out this hope and changing the landscape of their communities, and it's got him dumbfounded. And he, in a, in a moment of real epistemic humility, says, look, I've been trying to discount this, but this is crucial to the whole work, is this whole salvation business. And this, what he's seeing here, this isn't unique 
to this moment in time. This has always been core to the big why of the local church and even the earliest of churches. And the good news is that the Apostle Paul, he really wants us to understand this hope. In a world where despair is normal, he wants us to show how this hope changes everything. So if you haven't already, would you please turn with me in your Bibles to our passage, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 25. And we had Ephesians 4, 17 through 24 read because I need you to get the context here. Otherwise, we're going to land in moralism, just trying to be better people. But in chapter 4, verses 17 through 24, the Apostle Paul is reminding us of what he already showed us, what we've already talked about in week 1, in chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, that God, by his grace, through the work of Jesus Christ, has remade, he's made new those who have embraced the gospel, the good news of what God has done in Christ. And it's out of what God has done that we now put off the old self. It's out of what God has already done in us that we now put on this new self we see in Ephesians 4. Or as he said in Ephesians chapter 2, to now walk in a whole new course, not the course of the world, not the path of the prince of the power of the air, but in the good works that God has already laid out before us to do and the Holy Spirit continues to empower us to walk into. So that context is really important. And with that in mind, we come to chapter 4, verse 25, and we begin to ask a different question. What does this new life look like week in and week out? What does this hope that we've been entrusted look like on a daily basis? And here's how. Here's how it takes shape in our daily life. Don't miss this because this is crucial for us to understand this hope for me, how it creates in us and then leaks out to all. Okay, here it is. This hope makes people refreshing. This hope makes people refreshing. This hope, it makes people like you and me. Like when people encounter us, when the gospel's really taking shape in our lives, when this hope begins to embody, be embodied in people like you and me, when it begins to be the fabric of a community in the name of Jesus, and people encounter us, it makes us refreshing, right? And I, and I love the way that the Apostle Paul teases this out here in our passage. And I want to just look at three practical ways, okay? Three practical ways this hope that we've been entrusted makes us refreshing kind of people to be around. Oftentimes we talk about how we're strange, and we are, okay? Because the gospel, we talk about how the, the, we find ourselves uh, in opposition to much of the values of the world. But here's the reality. We should also be refreshing people to be around. Like this is good. Like the gospel really should make us like a cup of a cold water on a hot day <laughs> in the spheres of influence in which God has placed us. And, and where I want to look first is actually at the end here in verse 31. Look down with me at what Paul writes. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Those sound like pretty terrible things. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God forgave you. God in Christ forgave you. You know, here's what we see. This is how this hope makes you and me refreshing, no matter where we find ourselves. Because of what God in Christ has done for us, none of us has a standing before God except for the substitutionary work of Jesus dying on the cross, taking our just wages of sin, which is death, upon himself and making a way of forgiveness, reconciliation, such that now when we live in this new identity, this new life, and we put on this new self, our relationships are totally altered. 
from the way that the world works. Our relationships are defined by forgiveness. That's the new way. That's how this hope makes us refreshing. When you're maligned, when you're mistreated, when you're shoved aside, you don't become bitter. You don't fight back with slander. You don't let malice take residence in your heart. But instead, putting on this new way, letting this hope really saturate you, means that your knee-jerk is forgiveness. Because you've been forgiven, not because they deserve it. That's not the question we ask anymore as Christians. Because we were forgiven, not because we deserved it, but because someone else took our place and gave it to us freely. Jesus died in our place, and we were forgiven because of what he did, not because of what we deserved. So now you can really let things go with people. You don't have to let their bad decisions or their bad days define them in your eyes. Instead, you can choose kindness. And as a follower of Jesus, you can actually cultivate an ethos that when people are with you, they're free to fail. Isn't that refreshing when you're around people that if you drop the ball, you know the hammer's not going to come smacking down on you? That's the kind of people this hope makes us into. The kind of people where we create an ethos where people are free to fail, not where people intentionally fail. We still speak truth here. But people have freedom to fail when they're really trying. And you even approach those who have hurt you with compassion. That's a whole different framework. That's a framework that's only possible with this hope. And isn't that refreshing? Like, don't you want to be friends with someone like that? (laughs) Don't you want to be on a a team at work with someone like that? Don't you want to be a part of a church with people like that? That's what this hope does. It's how it works in each and every one of us. This is the kind of community this hope, by the power of the Holy Spirit, is crafting. It makes people like you and me refreshing. Refreshing. But it does more. Let's look at what this hope does. Look up now at verse 29. This one's about to get real. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give what? Grace to those who hear. Here's what we see, okay? This... This is how this hope that's been entrusted to us makes you and me refreshing. How we live out this new identity. Our words focus on building others up. Our words focus on what builds others up. This hope, it gives you a newfound security that you don't always have to talk about yourself all the time. You don't have to worry about building yourself up all the time. And if you don't feel like you've got a a next step up to go, you don't have to tear other people down so that they're lower than you. Isn't that the logic? If you can't go up, other people can sure go down, right? That's not the way we have to live. Instead, we can be refreshing. I want to return to this article from the beginning, you know, written once again by a guy who's anything but a Christian. Listen to what he writes. We had friends who were missionaries, and as a child, I stayed often with them. I also stayed alone with my little brother in a traditional rural African village. In the city, we had working for us Africans who had converted and were strong believers. The Christians were always different. Far from having cowed or confined its converts, their faith appeared to have liberated and relaxed them. They were a, there was a liveliness, a curiosity, an engagement with the world, a directness in their dealings with others that seemed to be missing in traditional African life. They stood tall 
And listen, okay, this isn't about cultural individualism versus cultural tribalism. This is about with the hope of Christ versus without the hope of Christ. This is what we're talking about here. And with Christ, they found, they had this newfound security in who they were that liberated them in their relationships with others. You know those people who are always an encouragement to be around? Like when you're hanging out with them, they're not talking about themselves incessantly, but it seems like they've always got a listening ear. What do we often say when we're with those people? Ah, oh, you're just so refreshing. Thank you so much. It's so good to be, I needed that, right? Don't we say that when we're with people that just have this security that they don't just have to talk about themselves all the time, but they can listen, they can receive, they can be present, and the words that they choose aren't tearing down people from their past, but really about building up the people that are in their present. Isn't that powerful? Really, that's supposed to describe the church. That's supposed to describe you and me. That's what this hope should be doing in our lives, freeing us to actually focus on building others up, letting our words be seasoned with the same grace that we received in Christ. You know, this last week, um, I was talking with a business owner here in the crossroads who's not a Christian. He knows I'm a pastor, and we were talking a little bit about his business and just over some coffee. And um, he said, you know what this world needs a little bit more of? I was like, well, what? I'm curious. He said, the world just needs a pinch more grace. I know I sure need it. (laughs) I need it in my business. I probably should be giving it more to others. And you know what? I agree. And you know who should know that the most? The church that's been saved by grace, that's been built on grace, that's been empowered by grace. And yet so often we focus on cynicism and biting others down or even biting back at the church. Like suddenly grace is fine for everybody outside the doors, but never given to those within. And we've missed it. It just goes to show how far we've really missed this hope that we have in Christ. What if we were that refreshing? Our words were about building others up. Like that became the focus of our speech. This is the hope that we've been given. And this is how it's supposed to work through all of us for the good of all that we engage But there's one more thing. Listen, this is a pretty robust list. Um, We could spend weeks, months just unpacking the richness of what we see in this passage. But I just want to highlight one other aspect and how the Holy Spirit is equipping his people, is guiding the church, is guiding and shaping each and every one of us to be refreshing in the midst of a world where despair is the norm. And, And here's what it is. Look with me now at verse 28. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands. Why? So that. So that always gives you the why or the purpose. He may have something to share with anyone in need. Here's what we see. This is how this hope we've been entrusted makes you and me refreshing. Because this hope, now we come to see our work differently. Our work focuses on serving others. Our work focuses on serving others. You know, it's really normal for us to work for a paycheck, to work for the weekend, to work for a really great vacay at St. Lucia. Am I right? You know, like these things, those are normal. 
But when people see their vocation and their place of work, not as a place to pursue and keep comfort, but as a place to have a posture of a servant, to always be serving those they're rubbing shoulders with, whether you're an architect, whether you're an engineer, whether you're a doctor, but now you've come and your work is a place where you're serving others. That's the, that's the goal of your work, not about gaining comfort. That's refreshing, isn't it? Even when people treat you like a servant, that's when it gets real. Like, what? No, like, I'll find servant, but don't treat me like, no, but when people start treating you like a servant, that's when it really becomes the test, doesn't it? One more time, I want to return to that article from Paris. <laughs> he just, he was so robust. I was really, I was blown away. Uh, who once again is an atheist, but he can't help but notice how this hope impacts Christians' work. He writes, it would suit me to believe that a Christian's honesty, diligence, and optimism in their work was unconnected with personal faith. Their work was secular, which is his way of talking about it wasn't a job as a missionary or a pastor. It was in a realm that was not, quote unquote, within an institution of the church. But this is what he says, but surely affected by what they were. Even though they had a job that was outside of the church, it seemed like who they were as Christians just leaked out into what they did. It shaped not only how they thought about what they did, but in even the very actions of what they did. What they were was in turn influenced by a conception of man's place in the universe that Christianity had taught. They understood the world differently. This hope gave them a different way to see the world. And isn't that refreshing? Wouldn't our world be a really better place if a lot more people embraced this hope like this? The local church, as God designed it, is the hope of the world. Why? Because she's been entrusted with this hope. It's the place where we're reminded of this hope. It's the place where we spur one another on to continue in this hope when our hope begins to fade. So I want to ask you this morning, as you think about what Paul talks about here, remember we just touched the surface. I don't have time to dig into all the depths of all of this. But as we've been talking about what Paul talks about here, as you think about this hope in your own life, let me ask you this question. How refreshing are you to others? How draining are you to others? Maybe that's the inverse. But how refreshing are you to others? And I don't want you to now go, I know some of our personalities in here and some of us might instantly go, well, I'm never gonna share anything again. And we start going down this martyr route and it's like, Oh, and we start to cave in on ourselves in self-pity. No, 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 that's not it, that's not it. There's mutuality in relationships to be sure where burdens are carried, burdens are shared. But ask yourself as we think about how you're engaging others proactively, how, are, how refreshing are you to others? This next week when you're at work, when you're hanging out with your friends, when you're with your spouse, when you're engaging your kids, when you're, when you're talking to your neighbors, when you're here amongst the people gathered in the name of Jesus, when you're in your community, when you're serving one of our local partners throughout the week, how refreshing are you to others? How refreshing are you to others? You know, and someone who's been an encouragement to me personally um, is our very own Jeff Lee here downtown at Christ Community's downtown campus. And he knew this was coming, so joke's on you. You knew it was coming. Um, <clears throat> but no... Over the past couple of weeks, we've been showing some vignettes of how this hope has beginning to be fleshed out here across our campuses. This one family showing up in five locations across the Kansas City metro. And one thing that I've always loved about Jeff is just 
his audaciousness of his hope and how this hope has become real in his life. He's not perfect. I'll be the first one to say that. (laughs) I love this dude. But no, but this hope has become real for him. It's become real in how he engages us, and it really has leaked out for all. And so I want us to watch together how this hope has been real in his own life. Let's watch. Before coming to Christ, I I was absent uh, of of an identity. I didn't know who I was. I didn't know why I was. My life was lived with this hollow emptiness within my soul, within my heart. And I tried to fill that with gangs and and sense of identity and family. And so uh, I had the Harley. I I, I carried my my pistol, my gun. Uh, I dealt in drugs and I did drugs. And... Uh, my life was spiraling out of control, out of control, out of control. I had destroyed my family. I had destroyed my friendships and every relationship that I had. Uh, I sought to hurt the people involved. God led me to a, a gondola uh, on Beaver Creek uh, Resort where I met a guy who I don't want to call a guy, I think he was an angel who came to me and preached the gospel message to me for the very first time in my whole life and I was 26 years old. And I wanted him to keep his mouth shut and, and, and leave me alone. But he kept yapping and yapping and yapping and then the words caught me and that's the gospel of Jesus Christ, Jeff, the hope for your life. I didn't surrender my life right then and there. I didn't have a come to Jesus moment. I didn't have that Damascus Road experience but I walked away from that day knowing that I wanted to go on a, on a search for it. I went on these other journeys and, and everything was meaningless. There was no hope in it. There was loss and rejection and pain until eventually I said, forget it all. I'm done. I was done with life. I was done with the misery that I left behind. I hurt a lot of people. I've got a lot of destruction in my, in my past, uh, uh, damaged uh, relationships and, and people that... Uh, Our lives are forever changed because of my criminal activity. And I couldn't live with the pain of that, the hopelessness of it. There there was no answer. There's no answer for redemption or restoration. There was nothing there. And I was hollow. I was hollow inside and I couldn't live with the fact that I hurt people and I hurt them really bad and why I did it, there was no hope for me. And so I found my dad's gun key and I unlocked it. I went and I loaded the gun up and I plotted it out in my head and I was standing there looking in a mirror. This is it. I don't have to live with it anymore. I don't have to go through it. I don't have to think about it every day of why I did what I did and who I did it to. I could just be done. So I had the gun propped up against the wall and I stared in that bathroom mirror when I heard these tiny little footsteps come through the house of my mom's house. And my mom had ran some daycare, so she, she had a lot of little kids that would run around. And I'm a big kid myself and I refused to grow up, so the kids loved me. Uh, and uh, she come running through that house and she stopped dead in her tracks and she hadn't seen me in a year. She was seven at the time and she had two front teeth missing. She looked right up at me and she looked me dead in the face and she said, Jeff, do you want a color? (laughs) And I said, absolutely, I want a color. (laughs) 
That's when the Holy Spirit hit me. That's when my life changed. And that guy on a gondola who told me about that gospel message of hope and restoration and healing and redemption and forgiveness and all these words that I knew nothing about, suddenly they made sense in this act of this little seven-year-old girl who just wanted to be with me. And, and I knew that that's who the Savior was. He said, come to me, you who are weary and, and burdened, heavy laden, and, and I'm gonna give you rest, Jeff. And I'm gonna forgive you. This hope is for me, this hope of, of, of renewal, of restoration, of change, of, of uh, hope in a Savior. It's for me, and thank goodness, thank goodness. But it's also about us, and the hope that is for us is that I'm not alone in it. I have brothers and sisters, a family of believers, all striving for that same goal, all striving for that same hope, and then we uh, as a people together can be that hope for the world because the church is the hope of the world. And Christ's community reminds me each and every day that I'm in it with a family. And Jeff, let me say this in front of everybody. Um, I love you, man. And I'm really glad you're a part of this church. Um, yeah, yeah. And he's a good storyteller, isn't he? Man, I don't even know if I can say anything after that. I probably shouldn't. I should just pray and end it. But I'm going to try to say a couple of things. Um, but in reality, listen, listen, y'all. This is, this, is, this is what this hope's supposed to do in our lives. And each and every one of us. It's supposed to change the way we see the world. It's supposed to change the way we see evil, even when it comes directed at us from another person such that we're able to forgive. It changes what we say and how we talk about other people. It changes the way we work and the reason we work. It changes everything. That's what this, the beauty of this hope is. And listen, this hope isn't some mere wish upon a star, as much as Jiminy Cricket may tell us. It's not some dream that may or may not come true. This hope that we see, that we know is anchored in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, and his restoration of all things is as good as gold. I mean, this is, this is a part of history. It's kind of like if you were to watch the, uh, the Super Bowl from this last year, right? You come with a whole different perspective. If you're watching the Seahawks, you know, and the Broncos play, you don't come with anxiety if you know who won. It was the Broncos. If, you, if you're watching the game, sorry if I, spoiler alert, come on, give it the times. Um, you know, you don't watch it knowing that the Broncos won with, now with anxiety. You watch it with excitement. Especially if you're a Broncos fan, first, shame on you. But then secondly, you know, if, if you're watching it, even when the Broncos drop the ball, even when the Broncos miss their pass, even when it seems the darkest, you can sit back, laugh, and smile because you know the end. You know, at the end, the Broncos are going to be waving the trophy. You know, at the end, they're going to be the ones shaking the champagne. They're going to be the ones at the end who say all of those hard practices, all of those hard passes, pushing to the end was worth it. Why? Because you know the end. And our hope in the gospel is even more sure than that. That's what we've been given. 
The victory that we see in the resurrection of Jesus is the promissory note for the victory that's to come at the end. And the Holy Spirit is the down payment that resides within us. And this is our hope. It's just that when no matter what comes in your life, you know what? You can actually navigate it with grace. So let me ask you again, how refreshing are you to others? How refreshing. If this hope, because we know how it's all going to end, how refreshing are you to others? This is the answer to the big why behind the church, folks. It's so easy to forget or it's so easy to hoard, which is why we gather together weekly to remind us when our hope begins to fade and despair begins to try to take over. This is why we're gathering together throughout the weeks to spur each other on to love and good deeds. As the author of Hebrews says, this is why we need each other. This is why the local church as God designed it is the hope of the world because only in the church, unlike anywhere else, at the very center is hope. It's hope for me. It's hope for you, it's hope for us, and it's hope for all when it really begins to take residence in our lives and our community. Let's pray. God, I, so often we're on the defensive as the church. So often we're getting ready for the attacks. So often we feel like so-and-so is against us, or this institution is against us. And you know, we're honestly, we are in a spiritual war. We are in spiritual warfare. We are in a battle, but it's not against flesh and blood. The Apostle Paul reminds us later in Ephesians. And when we're engaging with people, wherever you've called us as the church, whether gathered together or scattered, may we be refreshing such that as, the, as, as Peter writes in his letters, people start asking us, what is this hope that you have? Even when we're maligned and mistreated, people say, there's something about you, something that's refreshing, something that's different, distinct. May we be the people we love being around. <laughs> May we be the kind of people who take shape and formation from the person of Jesus Christ. And so may the hope that's been given to me and to each one here who has proclaimed Jesus as their Lord and Savior, this hope that shapes the kind of us we are, leak out to all that we interact with. May we remember why the church. May we celebrate your bride, the church, for your glory, for your honor. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. And